Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the last three weeks, we've been looking at specific miracles of Jesus in the region called Galilee. We began looking at the wedding of Cana and how Jesus made about 120 to 160 gallons of wine. And then last week, we examined his time in his rejection from the town of Nazareth, where he grew up, where he was raised. Jesus, in both of these passages and today's account, unveils his glory through preaching and through power. In the entire region of Galilee, he went around preaching. As Jesus calls his disciples in this account, he reveals the greatness of his power through the miracle of the great catch of fish, showing both his lordship over the fish and the glory of who he is as God and man. Jesus is not a created person. He is God in the flesh. He is not a created being. The Son of God is eternal. I, I did not reject eternal, the eternal begetting of Jesus Christ. I merely had to pause when we were reciting it this morning, just in case any of you were concerned that I had become Arian in, over the course of the week. The point is that Jesus is revealing not just signs and wonders as one anointed by the Spirit, but he's doing things in such a way as to demonstrate that he is God himself. It is not as if these miracles could be replicated by someone else in the meaning that Jesus has when he does these things. To be sure, these are miracles that later the apostles will do similar things. But in what Jesus is doing here, and what we see Peter say to the Lord Jesus, we see that this miracle was not done to show the power of the Holy Spirit upon a man, but the power of God, the God-man, being wielded in the earth. Jesus here not only shows his power over creation, but also lovingly comforts this new disciple, Simon Peter, calling him to a great and noble task. At the end of this passage, we see that all the disciples abandon everything, 
And in seeing how they respond, we too see what it means to follow Christ as the all-sufficient one, the one who has all authority, who has all power, who has all resource. By their reaction, we're confronted by our own hesitation to obey. It is the case that this, parable, this account must be read as a parable for what discipleship for Jesus Christ truly is. The problem that this passage addresses is we often do not see Christ as the one with all power and all authority. We, we are tempted to think that Jesus is just on the throne doing something that doesn't concern us specifically, us individually. And yet, it is exactly this point that Jesus is trying to make to Simon Peter in this passage. Therefore, I think it is the aim of this passage that we would learn to see Jesus Christ for who He is and trust in Him so as to be able to follow Him, to leave aside everything else and to be able to pursue Him with all that we are and all that we have. To that end, I want to look at the beginning of this passage, how Jesus is wielding or using the power of God's Word to accomplish the revelation of His glory. I want to look at the miracle itself as a demonstration of Christ's glory through the things that He does and the manner in which He does it. So not only the what, but also the how of the miracle. And then how Jesus takes that miracle and then uses that as an opportunity to call Peter to follow him, to be a disciple, to be a fisher of men, as it says in the reading. And then finally, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is not as if the disciples, the twelve who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, had to leave everything and all the rest of the disciples get a different pattern. No, this their leaving of everything is the pattern for all disciples in all periods of time, everywhere. It has a different application, but the essential core of rejecting all that we used to cling to and clinging towards Christ, clinging on Christ, is the calling for every disciple. Last week, we covered Jesus' rejection at Nazareth and how he began to proclaim God's word from the book of Isaiah, saying that today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And the, the people in the town began to marvel at him. They were perplexed. How is it the case that this man, who we know his father, Joseph, how is it the case that this man is able to preach with such power and such clarity, with such conviction and authority? They marveled at him and they were offended by him because they knew him according to the flesh. They knew him according to being a person in their town. But he claims at this passage that it explains him as the Messiah. And so they marvel at him. And in fact, Jesus then accuses them of being just like the Israelites in the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He accuses them of being the sorts of unbelieving Jews who did not receive the promises of God. And he says that Elijah and Elisha were sent to the Gentiles, saying, essentially, that is what it will be with the Messiah. You will reject the Messiah, and the Messiah and his disciples, his apostles, will go and minister to the Gentiles. Throughout all Israel, however, unlike Nazareth, people received Jesus Christ. Nazareth was offended because they knew him according to the flesh. And we saw last week that this is Jesus revealing that God is sovereign over whom he chooses to reveal Jesus Christ to. 
that God is the decisive factor in the salvation of sinners because He will have mercy upon whom He has mercy, and He will have compassion upon whom He will have compassion. God is sovereign in the display of free grace, and Jesus is making that point quite clearly. And in fact, you can often, you can, you can see that in today's message as well. Being rejected in Nazareth, Jesus did not merely stop preaching and try another method. He gained no fish in Nazareth, and yet he continued to preach. He went through all the regions in Galilee, all the cities, doing not only preaching, but also signs and wonders. The signs were done to accompany the, the wonders, which, uh, the preaching which was given. Jesus was explaining the Scriptures with clarity. He was explaining the Scriptures in such a way that the Pharisees never could because they did not really receive the glory. They weren't working for God. Rather, they were working for themselves. And therefore, Jesus is, is teaching in a sort of power that the people had never seen. Throughout the entire region of Israel, the people actually loved hearing God's Word. Nazareth rejected him, to be sure. The rest of Galilee received him. In the prior chapter in Luke 4, 42 and 43, it reads, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, presumably, as we learn later through the Gospels, to pray. It says, And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. It's the exact opposite of what happened in Nazareth, right? And with the Gerasenes, when he casts out the Gadarene demoniac, right? The, the, the demons from that man were so accepted by the people. The rejection of that man was so common in their culture that they wanted Jesus to leave instead of the Gerasene demoniac to leave. Both Nazareth and the Gerasenes pushed Jesus out, but it says that in that region of Galilee, they were begging him to stay. Verse 43, Jesus replies, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. As important as performing signs was to confirm his commissioning, Jesus says the purpose for why he was sent wasn't signs, but rather to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Verse 1 of Luke 5, it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Jesus, at this point, was not merely teaching his own opinions. Jesus was not giving uh, opinions on the Scriptures which would have been controversial or a matter of debate. No, Jesus was explaining the Scriptures and applying them. In the great tradition of Moses, who set apart the judges over the 50s and the 10s, likewise with Ezra, who set apart the people in groups and appointed priests to explain the sense, Jesus is now moving through Israel and proclaiming the Word of God and applying the Word of God to the people. As this crowd presses in upon Jesus, we see from this that when God's Word is faithfully proclaimed, it already is relevant and it is attractive. So many evangelistic efforts are ashamed of the Word of God and therefore they presume that the Word of God must be made applicable to the modern era or the modern day. And yet these people are clamoring at Jesus. They are loving what he's saying because his words are full of grace. They're full of truth. 
They're not grace or false grace, which has no truth. And they're not truth with a serrated edge. They're truth with a wonderful receptivity. He's speaking grace. He's speaking truth. And therefore, the people are wanting to cause him to stay. This crowd is hungry to hear Jesus' words because he speaks with authority and power, unlike the Pharisees. In John 5, 30 through 47, Jesus has a controversy with the, with the Pharisees, and he says, the reason you are not able to understand the Word of God and you're not able to minister in truth is because you seek glory from men. And Jesus, in his preaching, is seeking to glorify God. Jesus is not giving his own opinions, but he's explaining the Word of God to God's people. It says in verse 3 that getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. I want you to picture this. If you need to close your eyes, and if it helps you to do that, go ahead. But I want you to picture a crowd on the shore, make the crowd about a thousand people, and Jesus is there, and he's at the edge of the water, and they're pressing in upon him. They're almost they're almost causing him distress at how hungry they are for the word. They're begging for him to continue the sermon. They're loving this word that he is preaching and applying, and they're wanting him to stay with them. And so he, wanting to address the whole crowd, wanting to leave out no one, tells Simon to let him get in the boat. And I want you to just picture this. Jesus gets into the boat, and he says to Simon, he commands Simon to put out a little bit from the water. Do you have that picture? Okay, where is Jesus? He's on a boat. What do you do on a fishing boat? You're fishing for men. You see, what Jesus is doing in this point of the story is he's enacting a visible parable, a visual parable, or a living parable, living picture of what fishing for men actually is. It's not going fishing. It's proclaiming God's word to God's people. Christ in this way, an aspect of his glory, is seen because he's modeling for the disciples the very thing that they're going to be called to do. They're fishing for men. The entire account of Jesus' miracle, this entire account of what takes place, is actually set in the context of preaching God's word. The miracle of the fish is not done apart from or outside of the context of what it means to actually fish for men. Having finished his message, then Jesus probably dismisses the crowd, and then continues to perform a great miracle by telling Peter to put out into the deep. Now, I'm not going to explain what I mean by this, but I do want you to think that he's continuing to do a great miracle. Jesus knew, according to verse 2, that they had been fishing. As verse 2 says, he saw two boats, and yet Jesus commands them out nonetheless. The fishermen failed that prior night, we know this clearly, because they would be going to market. They would not be cleaning their nets. The nets can be cleaned at any time. The fish have an expiry date on them. They have to take the fish to the market. They would be cleaning the fish, not cleaning the nets. Essentially, what we know, because they're cleaning the nets, is that they had given up for the day. You don't clean your nets that minute and then throw them back in the water. You need to clean your nets so that they, they don't get crusty and and all the algae that is on them or the seaweed that's tangled up in them doesn't stay on them, so you can use them the next time. But you wouldn't really clean your nets mid-fishing. You clean your nets at the end of fishing. 
Clearly, these fishermen, Simon and, and Andrew and their servants, and John and James and their servants, they had clearly given up fishing for the day. Knowing this, knowing exactly all of these things, knowing the context, Jesus commands Peter, as, it said, as Luke records, to go out into the deep. This is why this message is entitled, Jesus Christ, Lord over the deep. As we read in the call to worship this morning and is in places like Isaiah and Ezekiel, the deep is a significant phrase in the Scriptures. It describes a hidden place where God alone can wield authority and power. For example, when Job is having a controversy with God, God responds to Job, Do you know where the deep is? Have you entered into the vents of the deep? If you've ever seen a movie about a superhero who transcends mortal power. It's kind of this picture that God is giving Job. Have you walked on the bottom of the ocean? No, you haven't. Likewise, with the Psalms, God is the one who causes the fish to swarm and for Leviathan, a great sea dragon or a sea monster, to be able to move around. And even Leviathan, which is pictured often as an enemy of God's people, even Leviathan looks to get food from God. Leviathan can't even feed himself, mighty and powerful as he is. Therefore, when Jesus tells Peter to take the boat out into the deep, he's not merely giving a commentary on where fish might be found that evening, or that, that morning, rather. He's taking him to a place where only Jesus Christ can wield power. In verse 4, it says, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Simon here does indeed express his anguish in failure, but he also voices willing obedience. Laboring all night as a fisherman without seeing a fish would have been at least distressing. If you were a businessman who, uh, who had ability to trade and had credit with a bank or with friends, you could survive a few bad deals. Likewise, with certain forms of agriculture, the way it takes place is you need to be saving throughout the year in order to sell your harvest. But a fisherman is much different. They are a much more liquid business. Their work is spent up. They pay their servants that day, whether they catch something or not. And then they have to take the fish to market. And if all the fishermen do well, they get a worse price for their day because the fish are cheap. Getting no fish that evening would have been greatly distressing and perplexing. In fact, it would have been so concerning, so rare an occurrence, that it's likely Peter and Andrew, James and John, saw this as a bad omen, some sort of sign that they had sinned against God. They knew the scriptures quite well. God will occasionally do things in the midst of deep waters where he brings judgment on wicked people like Jonah, for example, or Pharaoh. The point that they were probably thinking is that in some way we've greatly distressed God. Perhaps we're under his wrath or judgment. At least something weird is going on. The odds of fishing the entire night, especially with net fishing and catching nothing, is extremely low. You're at least going to catch some bad fish that you might not want to eat, might get a bad price. Simon says we caught nothing, not a fish. Despite this objection, grieving, voicing his grief, grieving, uh, voicing his anguish to Jesus, despite the objection, Simon does obey. 
Luke does not record Jesus reiterating his command. And in fact, at the very point of expressing his anguish, we caught nothing. He then says, but at your command, at your word, we will let down the nets. It says in verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. In this account, we see the glory of Jesus Christ in three grand ways. The first way is that the glory of Jesus Christ is seen clearly in that he is Lord over the creatures. Christ Jesus has power to command these fish by his will alone, without even speaking. At another point, we do hear Jesus say to the winds and the waves, peace be still. But in this passage, he doesn't utter a word. He merely is expressing in the spiritual realm his will and causing them to be gathered into the right place. It is one thing to tame beasts upon the land. Circus performers can do that. Agricultural workers can do that. Domesticating animals is possible given the right sort of animal, the right sort of training. But no one trains fish. I mean, we do that now with SeaWorld with great effort, great science. But no one trains swarms of fish in the middle of a lake. Jesus is wielding power over the creatures. He's wielding power over the creation. He's not only wielding power over the land beasts or the birds of the air. He's wielding power over the fish of the sea. He's much greater than Adam in a sense. Adam named the animals in the garden. Jesus is causing the fish to obey his will. And though one might be able to train a pet or a single beast, who can cause the fish to gather in a place? Remember what I said about continuing to do a miracle. The glory of Jesus is also seen not just in what he does, but in the depth or the quality of what he does. It's seen in the magnanimity of the catch. By the nets which were beginning to break and the boats which were beginning to sink, we see the abundance of Christ's grace and the absolute resoluteness of his will. Jesus did not perform some neat trick. I had the privilege of seeing two great magicians live. Now, I don't agree with the politics of Penn Jillette, but I do appreciate his sleight of hand. And Penn and Teller, I, once were, I was able to see them do some magic in person. Uh, and by magic, we, we, of course, mean sleight of hand. And one of the great tricks that they did that night is they filled a bowl full of goldfish. It was an amazing thing where somehow Teller's got goldfish in a sleeve or goldfish behind a thing, or there's a mirror involved. And yeah, you can get away with a certain amount of trickery. This clearly could not have been a magic trick. Jesus didn't go in the water. The boats were beginning to sink because the number of fish were too great. It wasn't like Jesus quick, quietly and quickly, while Peter wasn't looking, threw some chum into the water <laughs> and said, here, fish over on this side. No, he's, he's done something that is inexplicable. It cannot be accounted for by natural means. Just as in the wedding of Cana, in producing so much wine that the party would essentially never have to end, practically, and through the feeding of the 5,000 in which they have enough for 12 baskets, or in other accounts, seven baskets, Jesus here is demonstrating something. He's able to provide for his people. He's able to provide for his people because he owns all the fish in the Sea of Gennesaret. The point that Jesus is making will not be lost on Peter. 
That's what he's doing by making it such a large number. He's wanting to say to Peter something powerful, which is, I have all authority. I have all the fish. I have everything. And he doesn't do that by just giving Peter enough catch for that day. He's giving Peter, Andrew, James, and John the greatest catch that they had ever seen with their eyes and indeed had probably ever taken place on that lake. Finally, the glory of Jesus is seen through his wisdom with his disciples. Not only did Jesus Christ produce a miracle of great power, but he did so using it to accomplish a radical spiritual transformation in those who he was calling to himself. Jesus was not out doing tricks on the lake. He was doing this in such a way as to be able to demonstrate his glory so that Simon would come to the end of himself. As his sovereignty and wisdom are in view, as was likely occurring to Simon in that night there, Jesus likely prevented their catch the night before. You see, Jesus is working behind the scenes to do something great. That's why I said earlier, he was continuing to do this miracle. It is never the case that with net fishing, you will catch nothing. You'll at least catch things that aren't worth selling or fish that you'll take to a market where you don't care about your reputation. Jesus clearly is working both sides of the fishing that evening. He prevented their catch. He told the fish to leave their boats. And then when it was at the right time, when Simon could see the power of Jesus on display, he told the fish to jump into their nets. As Simon began to see these things that day, in them, in the events, he saw the glory of Christ and was absolutely undone. As I said, none of them have ever likely fished all night to no success. And likewise, no one had ever seen a catch like this. These were not boats that were kind of two-man boats. We often get this picture, if you've ever seen a video, Jesus movie, a lot of terrible theology comes into those through those, theo- through those movies because of subtle things that you can't know from the text and are just wrong to assert. But Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a business. They weren't fishing out in little one-seater and two-seater canoes. You can't bring back fish in a boat that small. the, The act of bringing the fish into the boat would capsize you. No, these were more like kind of mini yachts or galleons that would have maybe five to ten people or maybe even a larger crew of ten to fifteen people. They weren't peasants who were just merely doing like substance uh, sustenance fishing. These were enterprises, and they brought in such a great catch, and they kept doing it that they got to the point where, oh, we've taken on too many fish, and they wouldn't have done that unless they, they if they had, had a smaller boat, it would have been very clear, and they would not have taken on that number of fish. Likewise, the nets were probably of sufficient size that you could run the danger of catching too many. They weren't small little nets that you could hold by hand. These were major endeavors. And Simon sees the magnanimity of what's going on. He sees the grand scale of what Jesus Christ has done. And through the events, by God's grace, he sees something about the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, it says, But when Simon Peter saw it, the great catch of fish, the the fact that the nets were about to break, that the fact that the boats were about to sink, he fell down at Jesus' knees. He stopped working. He didn't need to pull in the nets. He didn't need to rescue the boat. 
he fell down at his knees, saying to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also so, so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Upon recognizing the glory of Jesus Christ, Simon, who called him master earlier in the passage, now calls him Lord, seeing his own worthy, unworthiness to be in his presence. Simon has just seen the glory of God on display, and he responds absolutely rightly. He has become like Ezekiel at the Kebar Canal. Ezekiel was sitting by the Kebar Canal with the, with the exiles in Babylon, and he saw a vision of the glory of the Lord that so perturbed him, so amazed him, that it says he sat there stunned for seven days. Can you imagine that, seeing the glory of the Lord? If you ever want to understand what Ezekiel went through, Ezekiel 1 through 3 is a great picture of seeing with unveiled eye the glory of God as he reigns over all things. Ezekiel saw terrifying things, and he sat down on the ground, and he was just perplexed. He was perplexed at the state of the world and of sin and of his own failures and his own sinfulness and the point of exile and the promises of Israel which were rejected by them which caused them to go into exile. And for a whole week he could do nothing but contemplate the vision of God that he had seen. That's what Simon is experiencing in this moment. Likewise with Isaiah who saw the glory of the Lord and trembled. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is pronouncing woes against Israel. And then at the beginning of Isaiah 6, he, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And the response that Isaiah has to seeing the glory of God is this. In Isaiah 6, 5, we hear, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What Simon experienced through this miracle was not seeing the fact that a boat was beginning to sink because of too great a number of fish, or the remembrance of the night prior where they caught no fish and now they caught great fish. Through the events, Peter, Simon Peter, sees who Christ is. The sign is supposed to point to its signifying. That is, the sign was leading Simon to see who Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ, having all wisdom, compassion, and mercy for Simon, said to him, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. At this point, we see that Jesus lovingly receives Peter, calling him, apart from any merit or worth of his own, to a great and noble task. Jesus allays all of Peter's fears at this moment. Peter says to the Lord Jesus, I need you to leave. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. It's not that Jesus Christ's presence to Simon was odious, but he had a sense of his own unworthiness and the sense of his vileness trapped in sin. And therefore, he says to the Lord, it's not right for me to be here. I'm unworthy of being in your presence. Jesus pours grace upon Simon at this moment, and he not only says, fear not, he commissions him at that very moment into a task which he is not fit to do on his own. He commands him, however, to imitate him. As we saw earlier, the picture of what Jesus was doing by calling Simon to push away from the shore as he preaches from the boat to the men, the 
the, the Word of God, Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to change who you are. I'm going to change what you're called to do. In this way, Jesus assures Peter that his unworthiness does not disqualify him from God's call. It is not as if Peter can, can cling to his unworthiness and Jesus says, you've judged rightly, Peter. You aren't worthy to be in my presence. It is true that he wasn't worthy, and yet Christ's love makes him worthy. Instead of allowing Peter to cling to his fear, as, as Jesus says, do not be afraid, Jesus tells him, you will be catching men. He assures him of it. What, what, what had happened last night? They caught nothing. He doesn't say, you will be a fisher of men. From now on, you will be catching men. You're going to have great effectiveness. And we see this, don't we? On the day of Pentecost, as Peter begins to fish for men, the very first time they go out that night, if you will, he catches 3,000 souls and brings them into God's fold by the preaching of the gospel. Having seen the glory of Christ through these events, these disciples are radically changed. They not only recognize their own worthiness to be in the, midst, in the presence of God in the flesh, they also recognize what it means to become his disciple, to follow him. In verse 11, Luke records, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. These disciples have seen the sufficiency of Jesus. What do I mean by the sufficiency of Jesus? I mean that through the miracle of the gathering in of the great fish, they saw that Jesus can meet all of their needs. That the real things which concern them, not their monetary gain, not their trade and career and business, not their providing for themselves and those who are theirs, but everything that they actually need, which according to Simon's confession is deep cleansing from sin. That's what they need more than a great catch of fish. They need to be cleansed from what actually offends God in them. These disciples have seen not only the sufficiency of Christ's power and that He can wield His authority whenever He wishes, whenever He desires, but they've seen His grace as He lovingly receives Peter and calls Peter up to Him, not dismissing who He is, but rather giving Him grace, cleansing Him in a sense by what He says. These disciples see that Jesus Christ is supremely desirable and therefore, because He is to them, and because they've been called to follow, them, follow Him, they leave everything. At this point, it says in Luke, they left everything. They forsook at that moment their father's inheritance and their trade. Simon and Andrew, it looks like their father had already passed away. Being brothers, they were in control of that enterprise. But James and John, their father was still alive at this point. We hear, therefore, when Luke says that they left everything, it means they left their entire inheritance and the family business. I want you to imagine this. You've been groomed all of your life. You've been trained. You've worked with your father all of your life in a trade. And all of a sudden, you see God in the flesh. What is the only right response when he says to you, come and follow me? The only right response is to obey. 
It's to leave everything. And the reason they were able to obey is because by God's grace, they saw who Christ was. Not just a teacher, not just a rabbi, not just as Simon called him earlier, master, but the Lord of glory. They left behind their father's inheritance and their trade. They left behind their boats and their nets and likely their servants and even their fish. Likely the most profitable haul in their entire career. I want you to think about the worth of what they're leaving on the shore. It's basically walking away from a pile of cash. All they have to do is take it into market and sell it. They're walking away from hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. They're walking away from their entire livelihood to follow an itinerant minister who later we learn has no place to lay his head. Seeing the sufficiency of who Jesus is, the disciples leave their entire way of life. It's not just that they forsake sins, they forsake everything which keeps them from following Jesus Christ. And for these disciples, it required them to leave behind their careers. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we likewise desperately need to recognize His glory, power, and sufficiency in all things. It's not enough to recognize Jesus' power unless you connect it, and this is why I need to use this word, sufficiency, because it's not enough that I recognize that Jesus Christ has power, but that His wielding of power can do something for me. It can meet my greatest need. As Christians or those who are coming to Christ, we often don't rightly look to Christ as the all-sufficient one who has all power and all authority. And because we don't look to Him, we don't trust in Him, nor we follow Him. When we're called by Him to do great things in God, we often fear failure, and therefore we're defeated before we even try. I often think that Satan's greatest strategy in preventing gospel missions, gospel preaching, gospel evangelism, gospel pastoring, is that he merely convinces you you're unworthy to the task. Brothers and sisters, like Simon, you will never be worthy to the task. And Satan, if he can, will keep you from ever opening your mouth because he'll tell you, who are you to share the gospel? You don't believe the gospel you sinned last hour. Nevertheless, Simon is not told by Christ, I will clean you up enough to make you worthy. No, he says, you'll be catching men. I'll be working with you. Just like he caused him to have a great harvest, Christ is promising Simon that he'll be working with him. Like Simon, we're afraid that our own inadequacies will prevent Christ from using us, saying, depart from me. It's not, I'm not a fit vessel for you to use. Or if we're not afraid of failure and we're not afraid of being inadequate, simply we're caught up with trivial things. We essentially go back to fishing. Probably one of the scariest moments in the Gospels for me as, I, as I've read them over the years is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, before the disciples know that He's resurrected, Peter says, let's go fishing. Hearing what takes place here and understanding what we read at the end of Luke and seeing it also in John's Gospel as John records that passage, hearing come out of the disciples' mouth let's go fishing, means they've rejected everything they've been taught. They have seen the crucifixion take place, and they think that the, that the hope of the Messiah has been cut off. The Messiah, in their opinion, was not supposed to be killed by the Romans. He was supposed to throw the Romans out. 
And they knew the spiritual import of what it meant to not fish anymore, but rather to fish for men. And therefore, when Jesus is dead and they don't know that he's been raised back to life, to say let's go fishing means let's just go do what we used to do before we came to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's, as I say, in my opinion, the scariest moment in the gospel. And yet, at the same time, it shows us the grace of Jesus Christ, because just like that day, He's unwilling for them to not fish for men. Jesus approaches the disciples, and He calls them to come back and fish for men. Because we don't reflect upon the glory of Jesus Christ and His sufficiency, the disappointments which are God's gift to us often are turned by us into discouragement which then causes us to dismiss the calling of God. Ministers of the gospel especially are prone to this. You evangelists, you fellow elders, take note. Often we fish all night and there are no fish. We fish all night and we put down our nets time and again and there are no fish, only to pull up the nets coming up empty. But we must not fear. Jesus Christ has all the fish. Sometimes it is like what Jesus did with the disciples. Occasionally we need to fail in our tasks because we subtly think that the power is in us and yet the power is always in Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus Christ ruled that day, so today he has all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus wielded authority for a time in his earthly ministry, but before he goes and ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Just as he caused those fish together that day, likewise, he can cause the entire heathen world to jump straight into the nets of the church anytime he wishes. We must not fear failure. God's purpose of his redemptive plan in the earth will succeed and it will not be diminished in any aspect of his glory, and he will never fail in even the minutest of details. God is sovereign over those he, who he calls to himself, and all who he calls will come. Jesus can make the fish jump into the nets any time he likes. So this is my call and our aim, my aim, my charge to you this morning, is seeing the power and the sufficiency of Christ. Let us joyfully forsake all other things in order to follow him, even as we call others to trust in him. Brothers and sisters, there are things in your life which you are clinging to, like nets and like boats. You may not be called to forsake your career or forsake your particular vocation. Nevertheless, you are clinging to things. You are clinging to things because we understand this to be not just boats and nets. We understand it to be speaking of something much greater. All that we trust in apart from Christ ought to be dismissed. We ought to forsake them and leave them behind completely as we follow the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes this year to the beauty of Jesus Christ in your word. We know that if we read your scriptures like Pharisees, trusting to see things of our own, trusting in our own wisdom as we read, that we will never see you. And yet we know that you've promised your people that your spirit will explain and apply and bring out 
beautiful things from your word. We know at the entry of your word, it brings us light, and we desperately need to see Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, that this whole year, you would give us a great experience in your word, both as individuals and as a people, that we would be able to see the glory of Christ. And in seeing the glory of Christ, we would see him as the sufficient one who can meet all of our real needs. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.